to this episode of the Fountain Court podcast. I'm Andrew Pullen, a barrister at Fountain Court Chambers based in Singapore. Today's episode is a recording of the virtual Christopher Bathurst panel and prize giving, which we hosted together with the Singapore Academy of Law in November 2021. The panel discussed a very common feature of commercial contracts, no oral modification clauses, and how they're interpreted around the world, touching on the merits and disadvantages of the various approaches. The panel encompassed experts from various jurisdictions, including Siraj Omar SC of Drew and Napier in Singapore, fellow Fountain Court barrister Natalie Coe, who's based in London, and Fountain Court door tenants Gaurav Pachnanda from Delhi and Kanagadharmananda SC from Perth, Western Australia. I provide a more detailed introduction to our speakers during the session and was grateful to them for joining me in such an interesting discussion. We refer to a number of cases within the session, and you can find details of those on the podcast page of the Fountain Court website. The panel also picked up some of the questions raised by this year's Christopher Bathurst Prize problem, and towards the end of the session, Senior Fountain Court Silk, Stephen Moriarty QC, and Sandra Boosen, an Associate Professor at the National University of Singapore and a member of the judging panel, join me to announce the winner of the prize for 2021. I hope you enjoy the episode. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this year's Christopher Bathurst Prize webinar. My name is Andrew Pullen. I'm a member of Fountain Court Chambers, and I'm going to be hosting this evening's event. I should start by explaining that the Christopher Bathurst Prize is an annual competition organised by Fountain Court Chambers in conjunction with the Singapore Academy of Law for young lawyers in Singapore. We run it, as I say, every year, and we've done so for over 10 years now. And each year, entrants are asked to write a an essay or a problem on uh, topical issues of law. And the prize for the winner is a placement with Fountain Court Chambers in London. Later this evening, we're going to be revealing the winner of this year's prize. But first, we're going to uh, have a discussion with an eminent panel of lawyers of the topic of this year's competition. This year, entrants were asked to write an essay about no oral modification clauses. Now, the question itself was this. The Singapore Court of Appeal, in the case of Charles Lim and Hong Chun Hao, identified three schools of thought as to the legal effect of no oral modification clauses in a contract. The assumption approach, the Briggs approach, and the comfort management approach. Which approach is to be preferred and why? Now, that question introduces a number of different terms, which we're going to be examining in more detail as we go through this evening. But the most important one for me to explain at the outset is what is a no oral modification clause? Now, this is a phrase that has come to be used in the authorities to describe a clause of a contract which specifies formalities that have to be followed in order to validly change the contract. And typically, those formalities will be a writing requirement and perhaps also a requirement for a signature. So, for example, a clause which provides that no variation supplement deletion or replacement from this agreement shall be, or its terms shall be effective unless made in writing and signed on behalf of a party. That's a typical form of no oral modification clause. Now, these clauses are typically tucked away in the boilerplate. They're found in many contracts, but they become important when a dispute arises and it's asserted that the parties have in some way agreed an amendment either verbally or by conduct. And in those cases, an argument is often made as to whether or not the no oral modification clause is actually effective to prevent that alleged amendment coming into force and having effect. And as our essay question indicates, there are a number of schools of thought as to how these clauses should be treated. And courts of different countries, and in particular different common law jurisdictions, have come to different views as to what the appropriate effect is of these clauses. And so this evening, our panel is going to look at the position in Singapore, England, India, and Australia. We're going to examine how the courts in those different countries have approached these clauses and discuss the merits of the different approaches. And we have panelists to help us do that from all those four different jurisdictions. And so it's my pleasure to introduce our four panelists this evening. First of all, from here in Singapore, we have Siraj Omar SC. Siraj is a senior counsel here in Singapore and a director at Drew and Napier, one of Singapore's leading law firms. He specialises in 
high value and high quality commercial litigation and international arbitration. He sits as an arbitrator and as a mediator, appears in all the levels of the courts here in Singapore. And very kindly for several years now, he has been one of our judging panel uh, on the for the Christopher Bathurst Prize. Secondly, we have Natalie Coe. Natalie grew up in Singapore, but she is a barrister in uh, Fountain Court in London. Uh, she has a broad commercial practice, uh, including uh, aviation, banking, and insurance matters. Recent highlight was that she appeared in the Supreme Court uh, on a very important landmark case on business interruption policies and whether they respond to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, a case called Financial Conduct Authority and Arch, which was uh, had some prominence. Thirdly, we have Gaurav Pajnanda from Delhi. Gaurav is a senior advocate of the Indian courts, as I say, based in Delhi, and he's also a, a door tenant in Fountain Court Chambers. His practice involves a wide range of commercial litigation and international arbitration and advisory work. He also teaches as a, an adjunct professor at uh, Jindal Global Law School, and he's a foreign, uh, registered foreign lawyer with the Singapore International Commercial Court. And last but certainly not least is Kanagadal Mananda SC, who is an Australian senior counsel. Uh, he practices from Keyside Chambers in Perth and is a door tenant of Fountain Court. He again has a broad practice in commercial litigation and international arbitration with a particular emphasis on resources, finance, and projects and insolvency matters. And Kanaga has appeared in a wide variety of cases, both in the courts and in international arbitration. And that's both in Australia and here, in Singapore and elsewhere around the world. So that is our very eminent and international panel. And with the introductions out of the way, we're going to turn now to the question of no or modification clauses. Now, I'm going to, in a moment, ask each of our panelists in turn to give us a short explanation of what the current state of the law is in each of their jurisdictions in relation to these uh, these clauses. And then once we've done that, I'm then going to invite them to probe some of the pros and cons of the different approaches uh, and dive deeper into the issues. Now, I should say before I do that, we will be very pleased to answer questions from the audience. As I'm sure many of you are familiar, Zoom has a Q&A feature. So please write your questions in the Q&A box and I will keep an eye on them as they go as we're going along. Don't feel you have to wait till the end. Please put them in as, 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 we, as they occur to you as we're going through the, the webinar and uh, I'll find an appropriate time to put them to our panelists. So with that, let's get into the substance of this. And I'm going to start by inviting Natalie to explain what the position is in England. How does, do the English courts treat no oral modification clauses? Hi, hi everyone. Thank you, Andy, for that introduction. I think to start off, I think I'll, I'll begin by saying that I'll probably refer to no oral modification clauses as non-clauses uh, for the rest of this talk in the interest of time. And I'll be introducing the English approach to non-clauses as set out in the well-known case of MWB Business Exchange and Rock Advertising. And so just to very briefly go through the facts of this case, now, essentially, the respondent, um, Rock, entered into a license agreement with MWB with a non-clause stating that all variations to the license must be agreed, set out in writing, and signed on behalf of both parties. So that's a very typical example of a non-clause. Rock then accumulated an arrears of license fees and the parties agreed orally uh, to a revised payment schedule. Now, the Court of Appeal uh, held that the non-oral agreement amounted to an agreement to dispense with the requirements of the non-clause. The Supreme Court then overturned this and held that the oral variation was invalid. Now, as we all know, there are two distinct approaches which emerge from rock advertising, and that's what we refer to as the assumption approach and the Briggs approach. And I'll take the assumption approach first because that's what the majority adopted, and that's also the current position in English law. So the assumption approach is essentially to give effect to non-clauses. In other words, there is no variation of the contract unless the formalities in the non-clause are complied with. And assumption outlined three reasons for this approach, which you can find in paragraph 12 of the judgment, and which I suspect we'll also discuss in some detail today. Now, the first benefit of his approach is that on his view, his approach prevents attempts to undermine written agreements by informal means. And that re potentially reduces unnecessary or abusive litigation. 
Now, the second reason he gives is that his approach avoids disputes about whether a variation was intended and also avoids disputes as to the terms of that putative variation. In other words, it promotes certainty. And lastly, his view is that the formality in affecting these variations makes it easier to police an entity's internal rules regarding the authority to contract. Now, the alternative approach, which we will also discuss today, is that proposed by Briggs, who does reach the same practical conclusion assumption, but approaches the issue entirely differently. So in essence, he says that there can be oral agreement varying the contract, which does not comply with the non-clause. And this is his test. Parties must agree either expressly or by necessary implication to dispense with the non-clause. And now the Briggs approach is one which I think uh, the devil's really in the details. So I should mention two further points to Briggs' approach before we move on to the other jurisdictions. And the first is this. So Briggs says that departure from the non-clause should not be lightly inferred where parties agree such oral variations without express reference to the non-clause. And I suspect we'll discuss this also later. This seems to me to be quite a high, potentially unrealistic threshold. And for reference, um, that's paragraphs 24 and 27 of the judgment. And furthermore, uh, we really get a better understanding of what Briggs means by necessary implication when we look at the example he gives in paragraph 30. So now his view is that there is a necessary implication when there is a urgent, potentially urgent need for an immediate orally agreed variation because there is no time for written record of the variation to be made and signed. And so that is the type of necessity that he's referring to which leads to the implication of an agreed departure from the non-clause. So those are the two further features um, to Briggs' approach, which we should note. Um, I think I'll probably leave things there for now and pass on the torch to the next jurisdiction. Thank you very much, Natalie. Siraj, let's now move to Singapore. Uh, the Singapore courts had an opportunity to consider rock advertising. What was their conclusion? Their conclusion was to adopt neither the assumption nor Briggs' approach. And perhaps I can, I can start by just briefly outlining the facts. They're extremely straightforward. The appellant in that case entered into a sale and purchase agreement to purchase or rather to sell shares to the respondent, but the transaction never completed. More than three years ago, the appellant sought to bring a claim for damages for breach of the SBA. The respondents claimed that the SBA had been orally rescinded by mutual agreement uh, or alternatively, that the appellant was stopped from enforcing the SPA. Now, on appeal, the appellants argued that the norm clause meant that any oral rescission was invalid for non-compliance with the norm clause. The court accepted that this is the court of appeal in Singapore. The court accepted the respondent's uh, argument in response which was the norm clause in that case did not apply to rescission. And so it was a pure construction of the norm clause. And so it then went on to deal with the effect of norm clauses, um, obiter. Uh, and their conclusion simply was this. Their approach was that the norm clause merely raises a rebuttable presumption that there, was, there would be no variation uh, of the contract in the absence of a written agreement. In other words, there's a presumption that unless you comply with the written provisions of the norm clause, there is no variation. The Court of Appeal, uh, in, in if I can briefly give uh, the reasons they gave for not adopting either the assumption or the Briggs approach. Briefly, the Court of Appeal felt that the assumption approach was too fixed in time. It didn't recognize the party's ability, having agreed to the norm clause, to thereafter change their minds. And the Court of Appeal thought that was a, a very inflexible and perhaps unrealistic view. As for the Briggs approach, uh, the Court of Appeal actually said that there were certain similarities between what they were proposing and the Briggs approach, but they felt that the Briggs approach didn't go far enough. In the Briggs approach, as Natty has just said, a party oral, alleging an oral variation must prove uh, first, that the circumstances justify implying an intention to vary, uh, or second, that there was an express agreement to do away with the norm clause. In other words, express agreement or necessity. Under the, the approach that the Court of Appeal uh, adopted, 
the party alleging oral variation must rebut the presumption that there's no oral variation by adducing more cogent evidence to prove an oral variation. So that's the similarity. And the Court of Appeal accepted that this express and necessary implication test under the Briggs approach uh, and the rather the rebuttable presumption approach that they were advocating was really the same, save that under their approach, it was not necessary for the parties to have specifically addressed their minds to dispense with the norm clause when agreeing with the oral modification. And it was not necessary to show that they had expressly addressed their minds before the courts could infer that the parties had agreed to depart from that norm clause by necessary implication. What the court would do was to ask itself whether if the parties had addressed their minds, they would have agreed to uh, do away with the norm clause. So that's the Singapore approach. We, uh, we can probably dissect this in greater detail in the course of uh, this morning or this afternoon. Thanks very much, Saraj. Kanaga, let's turn now to Australia. Can you tell us how the Australian courts have uh, approached this? So uh, the position in Australia is clear in that non-clauses are not treated as precluding an oral variation. There are decisions at first instance as well as in the Court of Appeal, some of which are noted by the Singapore Court of Appeal, which show that non-clauses are, if anything, only to be given evidential effect. No Australian court takes the view that there's a presumption to be applied and no Australian court has expressly considered the decision of the Supreme Court in Rock as yet. So at, as it stands today, subject to a decision of the High Court of Australia, the position is clear that non-clauses in Australia will not preclude an oral variation. Thanks, Kanaga. And Gaurav, India, let's turn to India. Can you tell us, have the Indian courts had to deal with this? Thank you, Andy. I, I think the position in India is perhaps equally clear, um, and it is just the opposite from what Kanaga said. Indian courts in Joshi Technologies, I'll tell you a bit about that case, but in Joshi Technologies, my own understanding and my own appreciation of the principle is that Indian courts would disregard any oral modification which is prohibited by the norm clause. There is, of course, some degree of lack of clarity or a detailed analysis as to how they got there. But I think the Indian Supreme Court spoke more from a perspective of certainty and, and the society that we deal with, and generally greater value attached to written documents as com- compared to oral evidence just generally in India, uh, in the context of several other principles of interpretation of contracts. That's, that's for example, in terms of implied terms. In Nabha Power, the Supreme Court has earlier said that we won't uh, imply a term so easily in a complex commercial contract anyway. In Joshi Technology is really the case related to a production sharing agreement between the government and a private corporation. Uh, The production sharing agreement would have entitled the corporation to claim certain deductions as tax uh, for tax purposes. And all the correspondence between the parties, including the invitation of tender, had proceeded on the basis that that kind of a deduction would be allowed to them. But the tax statute required that the provision should be recorded in writing in the production sharing contract itself. But for some reason, uh, it was not there. And the issue that really arose was that once the contract had been signed, would uh, would the sort of private contractor be entitled to those deductions? There was correspondence which recognized in which the Indian government had at several stages admitted that the entire discussions took place based on the assumption that you would be entitled to that deduction. But it was for some inexplicable reason not in the contract. There was subsequent correspondence that appeared to suggest that the government was willing to vary the productions or amend the production sharing contract as well. But those discussions or that agreement also did not result in a written modification or variation of the production sharing contract. And the Supreme Court really uh, very clearly said that they would apply the same test that they apply to an entire agreement clause. It appears to me that the reasoning was that there is going to be, this is in the interest of certainty as to what the contract really meant at the time when it was entered into. And just like they would disregard earlier correspondence, they would disregard future oral modifications as well. Thank you, Gaurav. Thanks very much for that. So now let's delve into the questions in a bit more detail and let's see 
what are the pros and cons of the various different approaches, Lord Sumption's approach, Lord Briggs's approach, the approach of the Singapore Court of Appeal, the Australian approach as well? Perhaps we'll start with Siraj. What do you make of the uh, of the merits of the three different approaches that the Singapore courts considered? So I think the the courts, as I said in in my introduction, um, I, I think approach this from a point of practicality rather than um, principle. And if you look at the uh, criticism that it leveled at the assumption approach, it wanted to. My sense is have the ability or the flexibility to cater for situations where parties genuinely moved away from the uh, written agreement, but for some reason didn't comply with the norm clause. So that's where I think the Singapore court was coming from, from giving itself that degree of flexibility uh, in approaching this from a, a point of practicality rather than principle. And do you think it was right to do that, to approach this as a matter of pragmatism or uh, or should it have been a question of uh, legal policy and conceptual matters? So my, my own personal view is I, I prefer the assumption approach. Uh, and I prefer that because it is certain, it is clear, it's simple, it's straightforward, it's easy to apply. And I recognize the criticism that's been levied uh, against that approach as being wedded to the point at which the contract was entered into rather than looking at uh, what the parties may or may not have agreed uh, to subsequently. But I, I don't quite uh, see that because if the parties, and, and I draw a distinction between an agreement to vary the contract and an, an agreement to depart from the norm clause, and I see that mm-hmm. as two different things and one not necessarily leading to the other. But where a party decides to, or, or where two parties agree to depart from uh, their previous contractual terms and, and agree a variation, then it's beholden on, on both of them to address their, or, or to address the court. And if one is then seeking to enforce that oral variation, surely that they need to provide an explanation as to why that norm clause was not complied with. As the Singapore Court of Appeal has itself recognized, it's very rare that you're going to get a situation where the parties decided to uh, depart from a norm clause despite knowing about it. So you, you either have a situation where there's extreme urgency, where they, where they had to act uh, without reducing it into writing, or where it's inadvertence. And I think in either of those scenarios, the principles that, de- that uh, govern the law of estoppel uh, would come to aid. So my preference is really to look towards the assumption approach and couple that with the principles of estoppel. Thank you, Siraj. Kanega, what's your take on this? And in particular... One of the things that Lord Sumption said in his judgment was this. He said the reasons advanced in the case law for disregarding norm clauses are entirely conceptual. And the conceptual objection that he had in mind was the point, the argument that parties cannot bind their own hands. Do you agree with him that that is the only uh, objection? And what do you make of his approach? I think his approach is flawed because it involves a sacrifice of principle at the altar of pragmatism. It is obviously a ruling that favours certainty in some respects, particularly with respect to aspects of proof and what you may need to do to prove the existence of an agreement and its terms. But looked at from the perspective of doctrine, it seems that if the very basis of a norm clause is the party's agreement, as to the norm clause, then so soon as the mutual agreement about that norm clause falls away, then the underpinnings for the operation of that norm clause falls away. And as I think Siraj adverted to, there is implicit in Lord Sumption's approach a preference for the autonomy of the parties at the time of contracting, and that is placed above the autonomy of the parties at the time of modification. So it seems to be an element of chronological bias for the authority of the parties at the time of contracting as opposed to the time of modification. And and that seems to me to be untoward from the perspective of principle, because if it is the case that contract is really a reflection of consensus and agreement, then the parties that make the norm clause can unmake it. And they can unmake it by agreeing 
to a particular aspect of a variation without going through the process that they had at one stage decided to adopt. This must be recognized in the context which I think, Andy, you've adverted to, which is these are boilerplate clauses. Recognizing that they're boilerplate clauses, no party is likely to have spent time negotiating the non-clause. And people may be aware of a book called The Three-and-a-Half-Minute Transaction, which analyzed ISDA forms and a particular clause in an ISDA form that went through about eight years of use in the United States without a single person recognizing that a boilerplate provision basically undermined the whole transaction. And um, it, it, in my view, that the, the difficulty with the Lord Sumption approach is it doesn't grapple with the question of party autonomy in a way that's satisfying. It harkens back to a, an ancient riddle about whether God could create a stone so heavy that he could not lift it. So there's a power, there's a question about omnipotence. And in a similar way, there's a question about autonomy and Lord Sumption's approach in my perspective, doesn't give credit to the capacity of the parties coming at a variation after the time of their initial contracting may seek to do away with or not have regard to the non-clause. Two very different views there from Siraj and Kanaga. Gaurav, where do you stand on this and, and on the question of policy, principle, pragmatism? I tend to agree with Lord Sumption's approach, and I and I don't think it is it is an approach that is purely pragmatic. I think, in my view, the approach the approach that he adopts is the approach that attempts to harmonize theory with pragmatism. Taking uh, Tanaga's example about God being asked to create a, a stone that's the heaviest, and then later on God having lost the ability to lift it. I think inherent in this omnipotence of the, of the concept that God could lift the stone anytime is the inherent in this concept of omnipotence at all points of time is a concept that undermines God's ability to create a stone that nobody could lift at all. And there is a, in, in the sense that when, when I look at Lord Sumption's view, I think he attempts to sort of harmonize the concept of collective autonomy slash parties autonomy at all points of time with the autonomy of entering into a contract that has a norm clause. And I think just recognizing parties as possessing autonomy to just disregard the norm clause at all points of time is in some way and so it undermines the autonomy of the parties at the time that they entered into the norm clause. And I actually think that if the parties have agreed to enter into a norm clause, at least the variation of the norm clause itself, for example, is something that they could always be bound down to. It's a procedure that they agreed. And if they want to have an oral modification of the contract, it is not onerous to have a two-line three-line document signed by both parties saying that we will not follow the norm clause any anymore and that would be a variation of the norm clause. Not onerous at all, greater certainty. And I believe, I mean, in my mind, I, I believe that I'm quite clear that there is, there is an attempt to harmonize pragmatism with theory rather than promote pure pragmatism over theoretical arguments. Thanks, Gaurav. Natalie, I'm going to give you an opportunity to... Um tell us what you think. And perhaps in, in doing so, you could also say something about the commercial purposes that uh, that you mentioned. Lord Sumption identified three different commercial purposes, which you explained earlier on. How, how do you think the various different approaches that have been put forward either promote or fail to promote those commercial purposes? Sure. So I, I think, you know, full disclosure, I'm a fan of the Sumption approach, and I do feel compelled to defend it. I can see the merit of the argument in Charles Lynn, which is that you know, autonomy in the past, present and future tense should be considered important. But to echo Siraj and Gaurav, I think the point here really is that Sumption's approach doesn't necessarily deprive the parties of the ability to change their minds or deprive them of autonomy. So we're not picking between a binary autonomy or no autonomy situation. Rather, on the Sumption approach, the parties can change their minds they just have to change it in the manner prescribed by the non-clause. So what one has to do is one has to frame the debate properly. It's not a matter of being pro-certainty slash pragmatism or pro-autonomy. It's a matter of how difficult do we make it for parties to subsequently change their minds. 
And going back to the commercial purpose of the non-clause, I think we need to understand the non-clause as parties essentially saying this. Uh, they're saying that we agree that if we want to subsequently change our minds, we need to do X, Y, Z in order to do so. Uh, and that's just that. And so that's the commercial purpose, which I view Sumption's approach is giving effect to. And just to, I guess, address Kanaga's point about parties binding their hands, I think it's not entirely novel for contracts to bind parties to a course of action and also not necessarily objectionable for contracts to seek to do so. And so, in my view, I don't see Sumption as posing too much of a problem. And also, the cases that we do want to capture, I think, sufficiently captured by a stopple, which Andy, I'm sure, will come back to. And on the other hand, I think the other approaches pose their own conceptual difficulties and generate their own uncertainty. Thanks. Kanega, you're, you're in a minority of one on this panel, it seems, and you've adverted to what Lord Sumption had to say about party autonomy and, uh, and, and your critique of that. I mean, one of the arguments that I have seen mentioned, and I think, it, I think it's mentioned in the, by the Singapore Court of Appeal in, in Lim, is that it risks the position that the parties could bar all amendments and that no amendment could ever be enforceable. Do you think, is, is, that, is that right? Do you buy into that critique of the assumption approach? Those who support the assumption approach must be able to defend such eternity clauses as well. Because if a clause says this contract can never be amended and the parties agree to that, then Siraj, Gaurav and Natalie have to find a compelling basis to validate such a clause. And I can't think of one because it seems to me that such a provision must be capable of alteration. And if that is right, once you accept the logic of that principle, then you expose the deficiency in the approach taken by Lord Sumption. And that, I think, does reveal a weakness. It's, and it is, in fact, the object of some criticism by Australian contract scholars, including Professor Carter, in relation to Lord Sumption's approach. It seems to me that to suggest that it's not onerous to write a two-line variation of the norm clause or to adopt the thinking that this is only a process by which you can make the variation and therefore not a restriction on your autonomy really doesn't answer the question about principle, which is whether a norm clause which seeks to preclude a variation except in a particular way, can continue to bind future selves or future contracting parties after the time of the contract's formation. I'm going to throw that challenge down to our three other panellists, Siraj, Natalie and Gaurav. Are you able to identify a principal basis to distinguish between non-clauses as interpreted by Lord Sumption and this concept of a uh, an eternity clause, a clause which precludes any amendment ever? I, I, well, that, perhaps I'll go first. I would simply fall back on party autonomy. I think if the parties decide to agree to eternity clause, then I think the principles that Lord Sumption has set out would equally apply. Now, if they subsequently decide to vary their conduct and one of the parties wishes to enforce that variance, then their recourse would be to fall back on uh, estoppel. That's my point of view. And I think it's also important that we, we distinguish between um, a variation to, uh, the, to the contract that doesn't comply with the non-clause, with the provisions of the non-clause, the formality set out the non-clause, and the variation of the non-clause itself. They are not necessarily the same thing because the parties can agree to vary their conduct under a contract because of inadvertence or some other reason, not comply with the formalities. Um, so I think they're two different things. Natalie, I saw you nodding. Do you agree with that approach, just sort of distinguishing it? Would you equally say that the answer in relation to eternity clauses is a stopple, or is there any other basis to distinguish them from non-clauses? Thanks, Andy. I, I think it is... I can understand the the argument that the um, Court of Appeal and Charles Lim raised, uh, and it does seem to be 
one of those situations in which the result is so unattractive that something must have gone wrong uh, and the lead up to that. But I think it's one in which we need to bite the bullet for. So I do adopt Raj's um, opinion on that. And I also adopt his position that estoppel is a sufficient safety valve for assumptions approach to mop up essentially cases in which we think it's unfair not to give effect to the oral variation. And perhaps assumptions approach did have its own problems as he elucidated it in the judgment. But I think those have been resolved in subsequent cases and that's something that we can return to. Well, Natalie, why don't you explain now how you think those have been resolved? Sure. Essentially, assumptions raises a stopple as a way to give effects to situations and it would be unfair to not um, uphold the oral variation. The problem with assumptions approach is that he essentially sets out really stringent requirements. He says that there would have to be some words of conduct unequivocally representing that the variation is valid, notwithstanding its informality. And secondly, he says that something more would be required for this purpose, for the estoppel, other than the informal promise itself. And I think following on from MWB, it was relatively well accepted that Sumption's approach didn't really bear scrutiny and doesn't really quite work here on the grounds that it seems almost impossible to meet. Uh, The primary difficulty is that he requires a representation that the variation was valid, notwithstanding its informality. So in other words, this seems to require a party to recognise that, you know, the variation doesn't comply with the non-clause, but go ahead anyway. But I think, thankfully, those problems were resolved to some extent in the subsequent cases of Kababji and Kud Food Group, as well as the um, approach to estoppel that was ad- adopted, albeit overture, in Charles Lynn. And so in those two cases, a much more conventional understanding of estoppel was applied. Uh, and so I do think it is a realistic and promising uh, solution to the problems that Kanagar has pointed out. Can I get- would you accept that a stopple can provide a sufficient safety valve to to deal with uh, injustices? Well, I thought that one of those who were advocating in favour of Lord Sumption's approach said that it, you, you don't need to go to a stopple, that contract doctrine was sufficient. So now we have a situation where Lord Sumption's approach is now being validated by using a stopple, which was earlier rejected because it was sufficient for Lord Sumption's principled approach or pragmatic approach to be adopted. So there's a certain difficulty in using estoppel and not using estoppel in my book. And I think that an estoppel is always going to be problematic because of the requirement for a clear representation. And that's going to be a difficulty, both with dealing with non-clauses generally, because the circumstances in which parties will say we assume or we represent that we won't call the non-clause into operation will be rare indeed. And in a similar way, I I don't think that estoppel will necessarily provide the answer in the instances that we've been discussing. Gaurav, what would the role of estoppel in in Indian law? Would it provide a a safety valve as, as it's been put? It would. I think it would. Uh, provided we do not follow Lord Sumption's high standard of applying estoppel. And that is the only part of the judgment on which I myself am not completely content with. I think having taken a position that norm clauses would not be varied orally, I think perhaps there was no need to, to raise the threshold of estoppel. And I think in India, although I haven't, I mean, I looked at the case law and we haven't really had enough uh, jurisprudence on this to take a clear position on, on Indian law. But I, I I think it is more likely that estoppel would be sort of applied based on normal standards that, that the court would apply anyway. In Joshi Technologies, the court refused to apply estoppel as well, but that was more because of technical reasons, because the law required the variation to be in the contract. Um, but had that not been the case, would the Supreme Court have applied estoppel in, in that case? and not followed the high threshold that Lord Sumption says. I can only guess, but my guess is that perhaps they would have. And since you all accept that the estoppel has an important role to play, if one follows the the Sumption approach, can I ask this, one of the three 
commercial purposes, which Lord Sumption identified in, in rock advertising, was and this was the first one of the three that he mentioned, was to prevent attempts to undermine written agreements by informal means, such as by raising an alleged defense of oral modification in order to prevent summary judgment. If estoppel has this role and sits alongside the assumption approach, how successful will it really be in practice in avoiding unmeritorious attempts to avoid summary judgment? Siraj, what do you think on that? I, I recognize the, the, the problem. I mean, we've, we've, I think we've all faced uh, in applications for summary judgment arguments of oral variations. But I think you would face the same issue. I don't think estoppel solves that particular problem uh, because they are often the other side of the coin. I think if you're not faced with a, uh, an alleged defense of a, an oral variation, then you're quite often faced with an assertion of uh, estoppel uh, based on uh, representations or a certain alleged uh, agreed course of conduct. So I don't think it necessarily solves the problem. Isn't it the case, Andy, I'm sorry to interject, but isn't that dilemma exposing the deficiency in Lord Sumption's approach in that it's not solving one of the commercial objectives that he raises as important? Because inevitably, if you have the safety valve or the estoppel, the party will raise the estoppel and summary judgment will be denied. I ask the question, would Lord Sumption's purpose be protected by reverting to a strict application of estoppel in the way that he articulated in rock advertising? Is the is what we're seeing in the other cases undermining that objective, Natalie? Well, I think an interesting observation, just in response to, to Kanaga, is that all three theories do rely on estoppel to some degree. And, you know, a common critique of the Briggs approach is that it's essentially saying that we'll only give effects to these oral variations in situations which pretty much amount to estoppel anyway, if you look at his example in paragraph 30. So in that case, I do think that um, it does give effect to the, the contractual purpose, uh, the commercial purpose of the non-clause that Sumption alludes to. We've talked quite a lot about Lord Sumption's approach, perhaps because it's, it was quite controversial, but it's also supported by several of you. Let's turn to some of the other approaches and um, Kanaga, perhaps I can put a couple of points to you. The way that the Singapore Court of Appeal analysed the effect of the norm clause was creating a rebuttable presumption. And it saw itself as essentially being in line with the Australian jurisprudence on that. You may want to comment on whether that is exactly the same as Australia. But isn't a criticism of that approach that that's not what the clause says? The clause says there shall be no modification except by following these formalities. It doesn't say there shall be a rebuttable presumption of no modification. Is that a valid critique of that analysis? It might be of the Singapore position because it uses the notion of a presumption. Australian law doesn't have the same idea. I find the idea of the presumptions difficult in cases where you are essentially dealing with questions of construction because it becomes hard to work out what particular presumption you are applying to that question of construction. And in practical terms, if indeed the Singapore approach creates a rebuttable presumption, how does it work? Who needs to adduce the original evidence before the burden or the onus shifts and what level of evidence is required for that to occur? Taking up the the other of your points in relation to that's not what the clause says, well, you're dealing with it on the assumption that the clause is to be given effect in accordance with what Lord Sumption says. If you're out of that particular area of operation and therefore the, the clause will not preclude a variation, then you escape that particular difficulty. Siraj, the approach that I just put to Kanaga was the one articulated as the as the comfort management approach by the Singapore Court of Appeal. What's your take on that? Is that is that the right way to look at it? Rebuttable presumption is that a faithful implementation of the clause? And if you're not going to adhere to the assumption approach, is that the only way of rationalising what the clause means? I, I think as 
the Court of Appeal itself said it's not that different from the Briggs test or the Briggs approach. It just pushes the boundaries a little further. It doesn't limit itself to dealing with express agreement to vary or necessary implications in the bar set very high by Lord Briggs. But it adopts what I uh, describe as a practical approach. And the way it would work is if a party was asserting an oral variation that didn't comply with the provisions of the non-clause, then it would have to adduce the evidence to rebut that. And the Court of Appeal has made it quite clear that the evidence that would be required would be quite a high bar that, that needs to be cleared. It's interesting, as you say, the Court of Appeal in in Singapore did say that its approach was very similar in in some ways to Lord Briggs. I must admit, when I read it, it seems to me it does start from a different conceptual place because because of the the interpretation of the normal clauses essentially having an evidential effect, whereas Lord Briggs's approach does seem to give it a contractual effect, albeit one that can be overridden by a subsequent agreement. Do, Do you agree with that distinction? I think that's right. I think they both start from different points. But I think the point that the Court of Appeals ought to make was that at the end of the day, uh, what we're saying is really an extension of the Briggs approach. We're not that far apart in in terms of what we're advocating. And if one takes the contractual approach rather than the evidential approach, the, 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 the Court of Appeal in Singapore also suggested a different test from the ones that the Lord Briggs had had referred to. Perhaps Siraj or Natalie would like to comment on that. Natalie, do you want to just explain what Lord Briggs said about what would be necessary to imply an agreement to do away with the norm clause? Sure. So I think we touched upon this very briefly earlier, but Briggs essentially says that we can't lightly infer a departure from the norm clause. We infer departure only where parties agree to such oral variation with express reference to the norm clause. Um, And the difference with the Charles Lim approach is that in Charles Lim, in order to satisfy the necessary implication test, it's not required that parties specifically address their minds to the non-clause in order to dispense with it. I think that's quite a significant difference. And are they, do you think they're both objective approaches to deciding whether whether to find an implied dispensation with the non-clause or is is Lord Briggs's approach getting closer to something subjective, or, or what, what, what do you think, say on that? Yes, the Charles Lim approach does strike me as being one a lower threshold and, and a bit more objective. The essential test is that whether parties would have necessarily agreed to depart from the non clause had they addressed their minds to the question, regardless of whether they actually considered it or not, and so. That strikes me as being the more objective test. Now, Gaurav, I'd like to turn to a slightly different point now, and, and this is something that comes out of what you mentioned when you were talking about the Joshi authority in India. And you mentioned in that case, the court was looking at both entire agreement clauses and a norm clause. Can you just explain how they work together in that case? And I wonder if you can also deal with this. Lord Sumption and Lord Briggs both discuss the uh, the question of entire agreement clauses and norm clauses and disagree on wh- as to whether there is an analogy between the two. I'd be interested to hear what your view is on that. I, I think the way, uh, although of course the analysis is not that detailed in, in Joshi technologies, but I think the, the analysis, uh, whatever it is, the Supreme Court appears to suggest that the purpose of an entire agreement clause as well as a norm clause is similar to the extent that both clauses aim to bind the parties to their bargain at a particular time when it was written down. So in that sense, uh, both clauses seem is serve a similar purpose. Of course, an entire agreement clause, once the parties have been bound to the bargain that they wrote down, an entire agreement clause does not have effect thereafter. It only relates to past events. And perhaps a norm clause then has an effect that goes on during the remainder of the term or whatever until the contract is modified. So in that sense, I think there's a sort of credible analogy to be drawn from the entire agreement clause. Uh, And I I don't agree with Lord Briggs when he dismisses that analogy to the extent uh, Lord Sumption has relied upon it. Because ultimately, I, I think one of the 
as far as pragmatism is concerned, certainty is concerned, that is sort of the key point in, in uh, assumptions uh, analysis, that parties had the autonomy and the competence to impose a restriction upon themselves, that nothing past, nothing in future, this is the contract. And if you want to modify it, we will follow a procedure. Of course, we have the competence to modify it, but we will follow a procedure that both of us have contractually imposed upon ourselves as of today, as of the date of signing the contract. So I think there is there is something to be said about that analogy. analogy. I don't think it can be, I don't agree with Lord Briggs' sort of disagreement with that analogy. And um, Lord Briggs himself drew an analogy with subject to contract, the concept of designating something as subject to conduct contract and that preventing a contract coming into existence until a document is signed or exchanged. Uh, what do you make of that analogy? Is that a better analogy or, or an equally good analogy in your view? I think it's an equally good analogy, but I, but I, as I said, I mean, I'd be, I only disagree to the extent that when you say subject to contract, then it has to be according to the procedure for formation of a subsequent contract or variation that we agreed to in the contract originally. And I think his subject to contract analogy is as good as the entire agreement analogy, provided you know it was restricted to the method or the procedure prescribed in the norm clause. Siraj, the, the Singapore Court of Appeal was not as, a, as impressed with the, with the subject to contract analogy. Can you say something about their reasons for, for disagreeing with Lord Briggs on, on that particular point? And uh, what's your view on it? I think there are two different things, because where we're dealing with subject to contract, it's quite clear that the parties have, have not formed an agreement Whereas when we're talking about a, a norm clause, we're, we're talking about a situation where there has been an agreement of a variation. It's just not complied with the formalities that are set up the norm clause. And I think that's really the essential distinction which the court drew. Can I, go, can I just get your take on the subject to contract analogy as well? Australian law, how does Australian law approach subject to contract? And is there a a risk that a normal clause has even less force than simply, practically speaking, than marking a document subject to contract if you adopt the Australian law approach? I think most definitely it does have less effect than a subject to contract clause insofar as the Lord Briggs prayer in aid of that analogy is concerned. I think the Court of Appeal in Singapore got it absolutely right. In paragraph 55, it just doesn't work. Let's now just turn to a few further practical issues. You've all expressed a view on the on the principles and the and the generally speaking what the pragmatic pros and cons are. Should it matter what the nature of the restriction is that is set out in the norm clause? Should that have any impact on the effect it is given or how it is approached? Natalie, what do you say to that? I think, well, as a matter of um, if we're being purist about it, no it shouldn't affect the approach that we adopt. But as we discussed earlier, I think we have the rather unattractive conclusion that the court and Charles Lim pointed out, which is that Lord Sumption's approach would give effect to clauses which you know, prevent any amendment, any future amendment um, at all. We've discussed as well the potential solutions to that, but I do see that as posing a rather unattractive conclusion, and that's a prospect that a proponents of assumptions will have to deal with. The typical norm clause, as I said at the start, refers to a requirement for writing, often for signature as well. Um, one does see in certain types of contract, construction contracts, for instance, a requirement that variations be signed by specific persons. So a company representative and a contractor representative would be an example of that. I mean, one could see that as almost an agreement that only those people shall have authority to agree to amend. Is that, is that qualitatively different from the mere formalities? Yes, I, I can see that point. And I think it goes to one of the commercial purposes of non-clauses that Sumption raised, which is that it makes it easier and it draws the line very clearly in the sand for an entity's internal rules regarding authority to contract. And I think that's quite an important practical effect of these non-clauses and that particular restriction. And Siraj, 
can I ask you, should it matter what type of agreement contains the non-clause? And one can think of different types. The, the classic example that we're dealing with tends to be a standalone agreement, and then there's uh, some discussion and perhaps an exchange of informal correspondence about a about a, uh, some change to it. But certain agreements envisage that there will be further contractual instruments of one sort or another, master agreement for a range of transactions. Should that make any difference to how the courts approach it, either from the contractual point of view or perhaps from the estoppel point of view? Again, I don't think it should. I think we go back to the issue of party autonomy uh, and we look at what the parties agreed. And I think if we start drawing distinctions between how we approach this question based on the type of contracts we're looking at, then that opens the door to a lot more confusion. So I would say that you would adopt the approach consistently, regardless of the type of contract. And Kanega, should it make any difference whether you're dealing with a bilateral situation or a multilateral situation? One can conceive of a situation where two parties to a say, a tripartite contract, agree verbally something between themselves. If there is a non-clause, which they've agreed with the third party, should that make any difference to whether any effect is given to that bilateral agreement? Well, no, I don't think so, because as between them, at least, they will have made an arrangement that would be binding uh, amongst themselves, even if the third party hasn't participated and filled out the requirements of the norm clause. One of the difficulties I think your questioning has exposed is that if those who support Lord Sumption's approach want to be true to it, then if, for example, the clause says that a variation has to be uh, printed in aerial on pink paper and only those variations will be accepted, they have to defend that. And that's that's the extent to which we you, you may be able to descend if indeed that principle that those norm clauses are to be given effect is accepted. All right, thank you. We, 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 we've sp- we've got a couple of minutes left to to discuss estoppel, and we've already touched on it a little bit. One of the things that I, that I wanted to ask uh, you all is this: all the three different approaches, or potentially four different approaches, if one sees Australia as substantively different from the from the Singapore position. They all allow for estoppel alongside a question of the contractual effect. Does the role of estoppel differ depending on what the contractual effect of the of the norm clause is? Who would like to start that? Perhaps Gaurav, what do you make of that question? I don't think I mean I as I said in a bit earlier, I don't think that it should differ. I think Estoppel is is a remedy that is founded in equity and, and uh, justice, and I think it should be applied wherever it is invoked and is made up. Natalie, how about you? Uh, it, I mean, is there a need for a a more relaxed test if you have a a stricter approach to the contractual effect, or or, or should one actually be having a stricter approach to Estoppel in order to in order to reinforce the contractual effect? Well, I don't think the the requirements of estoppel should differ depending on how wide the test um, for the non clause is drawn. I think perhaps what happens is the frequency with which one relies on estoppel will change depending on what approach one adopts. So, on the Briggs approach, one can see that estoppel uh, would probably arise hand in hand with whenever we apply the Briggs approach, simply because of how he posits the test. And Kanaga, you wanted to jump in on this one as well. I, I was going to say that the whole question about what happens to a stopple only really arises if you want to defend Lord Sumption, because the lowering of the test or making the test higher to make it sit consistently with the proposition that norm clauses are to be given effect only arises where you accept that proposition. If you don't accept that proposition, then the doctrine of estoppel applies as it does normally, and you don't need to think about whether you need to raise the bar or lower it. And so, so far as Australia is concerned, the existence of an oral variation will be proved or not as a matter of the evidence to validate that oral variation. And in those circumstances, I don't see there's going to be much recourse to estoppel. 
And Siraj, I'll give you the last word on this. What, what would, do you think is going to be the role of a stopple in light of the, the conclusion that the Singapore courts actually reached uh, to follow the comfort management approach here? I will align myself with Ashley and, and say that really one needs to look at where we stand in terms of the test that's applied. I think the Singapore court, because it's adopted a, a less strict, if I may, uh, approach, uh, does open the door to a, a more strict approach towards um, when a stop ball might apply. So I do think the question of how relaxed we are in terms of a stop ball or, or the standard of a stop ball that we are requiring depends on the test that's applied. Okay, thank you very much, Siraj. And thank you very much to all four panellists, Siraj, Kanaga, Gaurav and Natalie. That brings to a close our discussion this afternoon. But we haven't finished quite yet because we are going to move now to the prize giving for this year's uh, Christopher Bathurst Prize. And uh, I'm very pleased uh, at this stage to welcome Stephen Moriarty QC and Dr. Sandra Brusson uh, of NUS, who are just joining me on the screen now, I think. Uh, Stephen Moriarty is uh, one of our most senior silks in chambers and our former head of chambers. He has spearheaded Fountain Court's efforts in Singapore, and he's very familiar to many people here in Singapore. Sandra Brewson is an Associate Professor at the National University of Singapore and Deputy Director of their Centre for Banking and Finance Law. Her research interests include contract and banking law, and uh, prior to academia, she practised as a South African attorney and as an English solicitor. And uh, she is another member of our judging panel for the Christopher Bathurst Prize. And so uh, welcome to both of, the, of you two. I'd like, first of all, to invite Stephen to explain a little bit more about the background to the Bathurst Prize and uh, announce the winner. Stephen. Thank you very much, Andy. Well, I mean, having pondered the mysteries of whether God can create a stone that's too heavy for, him, uh, for himself to lift, we now come to me announcing who the winner of the 2021 Bathurst Prize is. Unbelievably, it's actually 12 years since this prize started to run. And it's also, sadly, the second year the prize giving has had to be held virtually. And we hope, however, that next year we can revert to the traditional format of having a lavish party after the Bathurst uh, seminar, where in addition to awarding the prize, we can all catch up over a glass of champagne or 20 and enjoy ourselves. As to the background to the prize, as Andy said from the start, it was founded in honour of Christopher Bathurst QC, who also confusingly practised under the name of Viscount Bledisloe, which sometimes caused problems, who as well as being a leading commercial practitioner at the bar in London, had strong contacts and a strong practice in Singapore. He was adamant that an important aspect, uh, or he was adamant that, uh, that it was very important to encourage young lawyers and he was also adamant that an important element in the education of young lawyers was playing poker into the early hours of the morning. And it's because of the support he had for young lawyers in Singapore that the Bathurst Prize is aimed at young lawyers starting out in their career. Over the past 12 years, the Singapore Academy of Law have had been stalwart in their support for the prize, and we simply quite couldn't run it without their support. And so thank you once again to the Singapore Academy of Law for all their assistance. Obviously, we couldn't also run the prize without judges judging the various entries. And so I'd like to thank again Michael Brindle, QC of Fountain Court Chambers, Professor Sandra Boosen of NUS Faculty of Law, and Siraj Omar SC of Drew and Napier for judging this year's winner. And this year's winner is, drumroll, pause for dramatic effect, Miss Hanyin Fu of Stevenson Harwood. Unfortunately, she can't be here in person because luckily she is travelling around Europe. But wherever you are, Hanyan, many congratulations on behalf of everyone at Fountain Court. We look forward to welcoming you when you come to have your all expenses placement in, in Fountain Court in due course. And with that, I hand over to Sandra Boosen to explain why your essay was the winner. Thank you, uh, Stephen. And I'd like to say how how much I enjoy being part of this competition uh, every year. So the entries uh, this year, there, were, there was amongst them support for all the positions uh, that have just been discussed. 
And there were also some suggestions for, of other permutations that uh, the law could adopt in order to address the problem. Hanyan, and congratulations to her. That's it's a fine achievement. Uh, her, her position was in favor of Lord Sumption's approach, which, of course, has very much received support uh, today. And what we liked about it was how she rooted her discussion in the commercial context in which these clauses are going to operate. And in particular, she drew a lot uh, from the construction contract uh, context. And she referred to some empirical evidence to show how this really was, in her view, uh, the best approach for the law uh, in practice. And she, she ended with the point that if you take the assumption approach and you don't, if the law adopts the assumption approach and parties don't like it, they can contract otherwise in their contracts to avoid the assumption, uh, the strict assumption approach applying. Whereas if you take the Singapore court's approach in comfort management, there's very little you could do to avoid it if you really want the strict uh, nom clause to apply. So all in all, uh, we, we found uh, Hanyan's, Hanyan's piece to be, to be uh, very persuasive in, in her reasoning, and that's why we selected it as the winner. Thank you very much, Sandra, and thank you, Stephen. And uh, can I just add my congratulations to the winner? Well done. So. If you would like to read Hanyan's winning essay, we will be putting a link to it on the Singapore on, on the Fountain Court Chambers website tomorrow, along with a list of the key cases that we've mentioned from the various different jurisdictions in the course of today's webinar. That will go up, I think, tomorrow. So uh, please do go and have a look and read the winning essay and uh, see what you think about this very interesting and uh, controversial issue, as I think we've seen from the debate amongst our panellists today. So with that, I just want to finish by saying thank you to a number of people. First of all, thank you to everyone who entered the Christopher Bathurst Prize this year. It's great to see uh, many people entering year after year. We get a lot of applications and, and people competing, and the standard is always very high, so that's excellent to see. Thank you to our judging panel, uh, Siraj, Sandra, and Michael Brindle. Uh, thank you to the Singapore Academy of Law for their collaboration with us on the prize over 12 years now. Thank you to our panelists for being here and for elucidating the issues so well this afternoon. And thank you very much to the, you, the audience, for joining us. And I hope you found it interesting and enjoyable. And um, as Stephen said, we look forward to seeing you again next year. And hopefully next year we'll be able to do it in person and uh, with a glass of champagne in our hands. Thank you very much and good night. Well, thank you for joining me for that stimulating discussion covering viewpoints across multiple jurisdictions. I think it illustrates that no oral modification clauses, despite being contractual boilerplate, give rise to a range of interesting and quite difficult conceptual and practical issues. Once again, I'm very grateful to our panelists, Siraj, Natalie, Gaurav and Kanaga, for providing such interesting perspectives, and also to Stephen and Sandra. A huge congratulations to our 2021 winner, who we look forward to welcoming to Chambers in London in 2022. I reiterate our thanks to the Singapore Academy of Law for all their assistance and to all those who contribute to and participate in the Christopher Bathurst Prize. Do join us next time for more legal news and analysis on the Fountain Court podcast. Mm -hmm.